Hey, just a quick note. This episode contains some violence, as well as depictions of anti-Semitism. There's nothing gratuitous, but if it's concerning, check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week, on Myths and Legends, it's the beginning of the story of the Golem of Prague, where we'll learn that the easiest way to make a new friend is to actually make a new friend. And if you don't understand that dad joke, you will at the end of the episode, and I'm very sorry. On the Creature of the Week, you'll see a super common North American forest creature with bright eyes, a bushy tail, and a taste for human blood. This is Myths and Legends, episode 107A, Guardian. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Have a dream? Maybe you want to showcase your work, a new blog, or sell products. Maybe you've been thinking about starting a podcast of your own. Well, make your dream a reality with Squarespace. Your beautiful new site is just a few clicks away, and their 24-7 customer support is there to help in case you need it. I love that there's never anything to install, patch, or upgrade. It's just one less thing standing in your way. Head to squarespace.com myths for a free trial. And when you're ready, use the offer code MYTHS to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Today, it's the legend of the Golem of Prague. Now, there are many Golem stories out there, but this one is absolutely the most famous. Set in the 1500s in Prague, the legend has a confusing history. Some say it actually stems from events in the 16th century, while most say it was a literary invention of the 18th and 19th centuries. This podcast is first and foremost about storytelling, not necessarily history, but we should give credit where credit's due. The most fully fleshed out version of the Golem of Prague is Rabbi Yudel Rosenberg's story. Growing up in a culture where he couldn't write fiction, he asserted that he found the story of the Golem. Multiple people translated and spread the story, creating a new legend set in 16th century Prague. Anyway, today's tale is based off of Rosenberg's original, the most complete I could find. I put a link to the only English translation in the show notes and on mythpodcast.com. The bag thudded against his back, throwing off his steps. But still, he ran. He darted past the synagogue, past the five-sided palace. Despite the late chill that year, Sweat had already soaked through his shirt, and if he didn't get inside, he would surely grow sick and die. And if he didn't get inside soon, they would get him, and things would be even worse. He was deep in the Jewish quarter, and he knew that they knew what he was doing there, too. They had to. They were running after him, shouting. With his own weight and the weight of the sack, the man plowed through a young girl and her mom on the way to the Seder. He didn't look back to see if they were all right. He didn't care. The rabbi's men were still audible from the street, their shouts growing louder. His mind raced with what they would do to him if he was discovered here, with what he had in the sack. They would tear him to pieces. He needed to escape to the Christian section of the city. Then he could figure out what to do with the sack. More yelling rose in the street as the crowds recognized the cries of the rabbi's friends and family running in the direction of the man. At last... The man broke through. A grin spread across his face. He had made it. He had made it to the Christian part of town. His part of town. That was when the police officer clotheslined him. The police officer had watched the Jews running after the man with the sack. 
who looked guilty as sin. He had obviously stolen from a Jewish family, and the whole community had come after him. The man hadn't heard the police officer's command to stop. So the police officer stopped him. The escaping man flipped into the air before falling hard onto his back, wincing. He was about to start chastising the policeman, yelling at him, demanding to know what he was doing. The man was a Christian. He was one of them. Why'd the policeman stop him? But the officer didn't respond. He stood there, mouth agape in horror, the contents of the large sack having spilled out onto the street. The body of the dead Christian child, drained of all her blood, was sprawled out for all to see. It's called blood libel. Basically, there was a deeply vicious and anti-Semitic myth that, as part of the Passover celebration, Jewish people had to bake blood into their matzahs, and the blood of a Christian child was especially coveted. This is a lie, and it's called a blood libel because it's not true. It's a lie that anti-Semitic majorities used to try and justify the persecution of Jewish people. There's some speculation that it began in the 12th century, during the Crusades, when, rather than being taken by an advancing army, some Jewish people chose to kill their children, and then themselves. Still, we see this lie persist through the Middle Ages, early modern period, 20th century, and there's even a few in the 21st century. Never mind that Jewish law states that blood is impure and explicitly forbids the consumption of blood. And, according to one book I read on this, it defiles even by proximity, meaning even if you're close to it. So, I just want to stress what was true and what's not. Anyway, today's story began in 1513 in Prague, currently the capital of the Czech Republic. The man with the sack had either dug up a recently buried Christian child or he had killed one on his own. The story isn't clear. But what was clear was what he was going to do with the body. He was going to take the body into the Jewish quarter of Prague and dump it in the cellar or house of a Jewish family. He planned to run to the police so the unsuspecting family would be arrested or perhaps he'd rouse a mob to storm the Jewish part of the city and then even more people would die. Fortunately, he didn't have the chance to do either of those things. The police caught him trying to instigate a blood libel and he never saw the outside of a jail cell again. The Jewish family that was yelling in the street was just as surprised as the police in all this. They had no idea what the man was trying to do. They hadn't even seen him. They were just calling for a doctor. Rabbi Bazala's wife was giving birth. But they still praised God that the intruder hadn't been allowed to get away with it. After the baby was born, his father took what happened that night of his birth as a sign. The boy, who they named Judah Lowe, would save them all from the blood libel. 59 years later, that child, Rabbi Judah Lowe, was now known as the Maharel, the chief rabbi and head of the rabbinical court in Prague. Not only was he wise in the Jewish teachings and law, but everything. He knew like two dozen languages and was admired in his own community and among the Gentiles as well. The Maharel had battled against the blood libel since, well, since the minute he was born. And it didn't let up until he earned the respect of the king, King Rudolf. The Maharel had seen too many people die throughout his life, and he remained firmly committed to ending the blood libel. Finally, King Rudolf decreed that he would not allow anyone in any court of his land to level an accusation of ritual murder against the Jews without going directly through him first, and he would rule on if it could go to court. This was good news, but it wasn't enough. Not only did this not solve the problem of extra-legal violence against the Jews, but their hopes were pinned on one man, 
Men could change their minds. Men could die. Still, it was a step in the right direction, and the Maharel was ready to take another one. He sent a letter to Cardinal Sylvester, the leader of the Christian church in Prague, requesting a debate. The Maharel declared that he would give incontrovertible proof that the blood libel was fundamentally untrue. Shortly after, the Cardinal happily agreed. He hated the blood libel too, and was pleased to have the opportunity to publicly dispel it. As such, he invited all the priests, over 300, to come and debate this one rabbi. The Maharal said, okay, sure. He appreciated the enthusiasm, but even he wasn't up for debating 300 people at once. Finally, they came to an agreement. The debate would stretch over a 30-day period, and the Maharal would debate 10 priests a day. The Jewish community was aware what was at stake. If they could have the priests as allies, even half the priests, they could stop this thing. So, for the entire 30 days, the Jewish community reportedly recited the complete book of Psalms daily at dawn and fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And it went well. It was exhausting, but the Maharal dispelled many myths that the priests had about Judaism. It's along the lines of what we talked about a few minutes ago, but if you want to read in detail, I posted a link to the excellent translation of the story. Throughout all these debates, there was just one priest named Thaddeus, who walked away in a huff. He'd lobbed some unfair questions at the Maharel, and even though the rabbi answered them skillfully, this guy wasn't satisfied. I mean, he would never be satisfied, he was deeply anti-Semitic, but all in all, the Maharel left the meeting with a good feeling. He figured they'd reduce the chances of a blood libel that year by at least half. And yet, it only took one disgruntled person, one body, hidden well enough that the king might not believe it was a coincidence, and then it would all begin again. Worse yet, there was Thaddeus. After the Maharel's success in the debates, Thaddeus had devoted himself to waging war against the rabbi in order to have him exiled from Prague forever. You will create a golem made of clay and loam. You will order him to destroy the evil tormentors of the Jews. The Maharel sat up in bed. It was the middle of the night, but he kept hearing those words in his head, over and over. It had been eight years since the debates, and though things had been relatively peaceful for a few years, it had begun to grow tense once again. Thaddeus, the anti-Semitic priest, had further risen among the priestly ranks. He also learned sorcery, because sure, since blood libels had almost ceased to be a problem during that time, the king stopped worrying about them so much. There was now a blind spot, and the Maharal had seen them. The looks. Still, he hadn't imagined things were so far gone until his dream. A golem? A being made from clay? The Maharal sighed and rubbed the sleep from his eyes. If he was receiving a command in a dream, he should listen. That morning, he rose early, and before dawn he was at the home of his son-in-law. He called on his best student, too. Once inside, he told the pair of the dream. The three men shivered by the river as their hands, numb from the crisp air, finished forming the creature. They stepped back and in moonlight looked with satisfaction at the man they had formed from the clay and loam. It was after one o'clock in the morning by now and yet none of them were tired. They had been preparing for this all week, purifying themselves. Like the story of Frankenstein's creation, 
we aren't given detailed steps for creating a golem, just vaguely told that the men prepared for it. The trio had met on the riverbank, full of anticipation. Four elements were needed in order to bring the being to life. Earth, wind, fire, water, but no mention of heart. Which is good, that never made sense to me. Anyway, the Maharal stepped forward. He was born with the power of air, his son-in-law with the power of fire, and the other student with the power of water. The earth was, well, the clay. Sidebar, if anyone can give me any insight as to what being born with the power of air, fire, and water means, please do. I have no idea. Well, like I said, the Maharal had been preparing all week, studying and praying, and now it was go time. He told his son-in-law to walk counterclockwise around the man-shaped mud seven times while reciting a specific combination of letters. The son-in-law trembled with excitement as he completed his seventh rotation, and the body of mud began glowing red like an ember. The student was next, and he walked around the creature seven times, saying the words the Maharal had told him, the heat from the figure warming his side. When he finished, the glowing stopped, and the body hardened. It grew hair and nails. The Maharal clasped both of his pupils on the shoulder and began his own walk. When he completed his seventh circuit, all men said in unison, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The creature's eyes snapped open. Stand to your feet, the Maharal said through a smile. Instantly, the creature sprang to his feet. The Maharal inspected him as the others stood back in fear. The leader motioned to his son-in-law for the package, and they helped the golem dress and put on shoes so he could pass through the city. The three men walked on either side and in front of the golem to shield him from anyone who might be on the street early. The Maharal walked beside his creation and told the being that his name was Yosef, drawn from a creature mentioned in the Talmud, who, even though he was half man and half demon, saved the sages multiple times. This man was stronger though. He could walk through fire and not be burned. He would not drown. He wouldn't be hurt if he fell off a building and he couldn't be killed with a sword. When they returned to the Maharal's house, everyone was just starting to rise. So the Maharal drew everyone together, saying, First, good morning. Also, me and my buddies made a deathless clay man who will guard the Jews from all harm at the hands of enemies and oppressors. You know, normal Monday night. Anyway, he'll obey any command we give him, so, you know, only use him in the most dire of circumstances. The house took the news in stride, and they gave the golem a room upstairs. Now, the Maharal's wife heard, only use him in life or death matters, and thought, Surely he didn't mean she couldn't have the indestructible clay man run some errands. The Passover feast was fast approaching, and she needed someone to fetch water. During the day, he sat in the corner of the room, his head in his arms, and his mind empty. When she gave him the command, he leapt to his feet, grabbed the buckets, and ran out the door to fetch water. It was about an hour later, when everyone felt the water begin to pool up around their ankles. A quick search revealed the source. The room with the two barrels Yosef had been tasked with filling except that he wasn't commanded to fill the barrels, or else then he would have stopped. No, he was commanded to fetch water and put it in the barrels. So he was still sprinting back and forth between the house and the well before the Maharal commanded him to stop. He froze, returned to the table, and put his head back in his hands. Everyone else laughed, and the Maharal's wife didn't speak to the golem again. It was a few months later, during Rosh Hashanah, that the Maharal gave the golem his first real command groceries. They needed fish, but it would be pretty dangerous to send anyone out in the blizzard. The Maharal reasoned that, despite this being pretty
pretty much exactly the same as his wife's mistake, this was definitely a good idea. He sent the golem out to catch fish, and then promptly forgot about it. Fifteen hours later, they were all sitting down to dinner. Someone had come by with a fish for the esteemed family, so the golem wasn't missed. It was only as he bit into the fish that the maharel remembered that he had sent the golem out. Huh. The poor guy must have not caught anything. He asked his friend to go down to the river and tell the golem that it was okay if he hadn't caught anything. He should just come home without the fish. The man, named Reb Heim, found the golem standing on the riverbank, ice having collected on his clay skin. He yelled down to the golem. He should come home without the fish. The clay man nodded, pulled up his net with enough fish to feed the entire Jewish community, dumped all the fish back into the water, and returned home. It was only after the Maharel heard the story that he realized that he told the golem to catch fish, not what to do with them. Everyone sat laughing at him now. The Maharel grinned. Okay, seriously this time, we should all not use him for errands and menial tasks. Only life and death stuff. Unfortunately, life and death stuff was right around the corner. Things had been quiet for months since the creation of the golem, but that didn't mean Thaddeus wasn't busy the Maharel began hearing rumors from the people sympathetic to the Jews, or just people who didn't want a violent mob coming after innocent people. I mean, that should really be everyone. But the priest was up to something. When we get back from the break, we'll see that the golem will, sadly, finally be necessary. But that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. The butcher sneered as he rode toward the Jewish quarter. He owed Mordecai nearly 500 kroner, and he'd been keeping the easygoing businessmen at bay for months. Until Passover. Until the butcher could wipe out Mordecai and his debt, all in one day. He rested his hand on the pig corpse in the carriage behind him. Inside one corpse was another. Just a few days ago, a child had died in the house next door to him. And the night after that, he was flinging dirt off the fresh gravesite over his shoulder and rushing back home, the child's corpse in his arms. He was startled from thought as the carriage hit something, or rather, someone. A man stood before him and, with one hand, he had stopped the carriage. The butcher yelled at the man dressed in the clothes of a Gentile to get out of the way, but the stranger wasn't paying attention. Holding the carriage in place with one hand, the stranger lifted the tarp with the other. He looked at the burden, let the tarp go, and removed the rope that functioned as his belt. The butcher had two sensations at once. First, the man was impossibly cold and strong. His grip was like pure iron, Second, the man was taking the butcher and hog-tying him to his own carriage. The butcher tried to put up a fight, but that lasted all of five seconds, before he realized that the strange man wouldn't hesitate to break his bones if he didn't submit. The driver's seat now clear, the stranger took a seat and drove the carriage away. The carriage drew quite the following throughout town, as the man screamed that he was being kidnapped. Someone needed to call the police. As it turned out, they didn't need to the stranger was taking him to City Hall. Outside, the police saw the bruised and bleeding butcher tied to his carriage and ran to him. The stranger stepped down from the carriage and disappeared. As in, he didn't melt into the crowd or something, 
he simply disappeared. When he was safely back in the Jewish quarter, he removed the deerskin patch the Maharel made for his forehead, and the golem reappeared. The priest, Thaddeus, looked at the payment he owed Reb Berger, a Jewish wine merchant. Now, no, this was all wrong. They were overcharging him. Hastily, he wrote out a note and shoved it into the hands of a servant, who took the accusation straight to the hands of the person who managed the wine merchant's books, his beautiful 16-year-old daughter. Word had spread quickly after the incident in front of City Hall. It filled the Jewish population of Prague with hope, and anyone planning violence against the Jews with terror. Except Thaddeus. He'd been buying wine on credit, like a lot of wine. Not only was it great wine, but he had a plan. He had glanced at the bill and decided that they charged him for 10 more bottles than he bought. Of course, he received a note back saying that, no, they didn't. Undeterred, Thaddeus insinuated that, as a respected member of the community, he hoped he didn't need to take this matter to City Hall. Not needing the trouble and knowing their books were impeccable, the daughter took her ledger to Thaddeus's home, wanting to put the issue to rest before it became a much bigger problem. The girl stood next to the priest, detailing, line by line, how much each bottle had cost, and how her records matched the shipment he signed off on. She wrote the bill a second time, exactly as she had the first. The priest sat back, seemingly stunned. Then he remembered. It wasn't that he hadn't received 10 bottles. It was that 10 bottles had come back just absolutely terrible. They tasted like vinegar. This got the daughter's attention. Winemaking was a months-long process, and if anything had gone so wrong as to make wine taste like vinegar, they needed to figure it out and fix it. Now, she asked to see the bottles, and the priest nodded. Of course, he had the servant bring up ten bottles he had set aside. And, reopening the bottle in question, the priest instructed the servant to pour a glass for the daughter. The young woman tried it, but no, now it tasted fine. Really? The priest shot back before having a glass himself? Yeah, wow, this is amazing. He was wrong. Well, he was wrong about that one, but what about the next one? It was three more glasses of wine set before the daughter that she began to feel a lot more relaxed around the priest, even though he was over twice her age. Thaddeus laid on the charm, too. The daughter's parents, mindful of the girl, were extremely overprotective. They would barely let her walk by herself around town. Now she was having drinks alone with an older man. She knew she shouldn't be doing it, but it was thrilling. Around nightfall, she was sober enough to know that she should be getting home, but she had a fantastic time with the priest. He kissed her hand and told her he had a wonderful time too. He knew he couldn't come to visit her, but she was welcome to come to him anytime she wanted. And she wanted to. A lot. The priest was an older man and, well, a priest, so it wasn't like she was attracted to him. But she felt that he understood her in a way her parents just didn't. She would enclose a letter anytime he ordered from them, and soon she was helping to deliver the wine. Finally, one night, she simply didn't come home. Her parents, completely ignorant of the friendship, looked everywhere and could be seen crying in the street. Inside the priest's cloister, the daughter looked on her tiny bed. He assured her that it was only for a short while. 
until her conversion to Christianity was complete. She was in a secret room in his cloister, in the courtyard, away from any exterior walls. Thaddeus made sure she didn't want for anything, and she was free to go whenever she wanted, just as long as it wasn't during the day or night. After a few weeks, he stopped by her cell, or her tiny apartment that locked from the outside. He could see that she was getting upset and worried about her getting cold feet or maybe pressing kidnapping charges. So Thaddeus ventured a few miles north to meet an old duke. When the priest returned a few days later, he had a friend. The duke's 18-year-old son was speechless when he saw the girl, and the pair was allowed to walk around the priest's courtyard in order to get to know each other. The daughter still felt sad to be leaving her family and community, but she was in love, and she could go through with the conversion if it meant marrying the duke's son. Week after week they met, and week after week her parents searched. They had heard rumors that she had been seen walking down the alley by the priest's cloister, but when they went and confronted Thaddeus, they obviously weren't allowed inside. The police were sympathetic, but they didn't have any actual evidence. Then, the parents remembered the stories. Stories about the Maharal having made a golem, an invincible protector. Maybe he could help. No, no, I have no desire to help you, and I won't intervene, the Maharal shouted into the street. People for a block in either direction could hear him chastise the parents for coming to him. They begged him in tears, and he took the letter of introduction their rabbi had written for them, tore it up, and tossed it out. He yelled again, pointing a finger. He refused to help them in any way. Get out. The couple left for home, in tears, knowing that all hope was lost. If this seems extremely out of character for the Maharal, that's because it was. He, too, had been looking for the daughter, and he had heard rumors that she was with Thaddeus. The priest was dangerous, too, and the Maharal and the Golem were going to find the girl, and when they did, the Maharal couldn't be publicly linked to it. That's why, by messenger that night, the Maharal sent them a short note. Their daughter would be coming home. Fast for three days, recite the Book of Psalms, and get ready to run. The father had family in Amsterdam. He could move his business there. He stopped eating, and he started praying. The Maharal had friends all over the city, even among people who worked for Thaddeus, so he knew the priest was just about to go out of town for a conference in Krakow. While Thaddeus was away at PriestCon, the Maharal and the Golem would make their move. As I've alluded, the Golem had an amulet, or sometimes a deerskin, that could turn him invisible. All he needed to do was go to Thaddeus's cloister and just wait. When the servant inevitably left, he would simply need to catch the door with his foot and step inside. Once inside the cloister, just look around for the key to the cell. After all, the servants had to feed the girl somehow, then unlock the door and help her into a sack. Of course, the Maharal gave the golem way more instructions than that. Remember, the creature was very literal, so he made sure to specify that the amulet was off his forehead when he spoke to the girl, and that he should not only tell the girl to get in the bag, but also take the bag with him when he left. The golem found the girl at midnight that night, eyes red and voice hoarse from crying. The next morning, the unsuspecting servant dropped the tray 
as he stared into the young girl's cell. He flung the door wide open and searched all around. She was gone. Ah, oh, he was going to be in so much trouble. Or, or, maybe he wouldn't. The servant positioned the bones on top of the bed. He wasn't able to find girl bones. It had been a few years since the cellar in the cloister had been used as catacombs. So he did the best he could, thinking that this was good enough. He looked at one of the candles near the bed and, oh, oops, it fell down on the linens and the whole thing went up in flames. He waited until he was sure the bed was consumed before running out into the street, screaming that there was a fire. Thaddeus returned not to his captive, but to a burnt out husk of a cell and a lot of questions from the police. Thaddeus wept, saying that he had permitted a homeless man to stay in that room. It broke his heart that there had been such a terrible accident. Suspicious, but unable to prove otherwise, the police watched Thaddeus. Thaddeus knew his servants had betrayed him, been paid off by the girl's family, and burned the room to cover his tracks. Thaddeus told the duke that the girl had burned to death, and the duke told his son, who went into your standard medieval spiral, where he might actually die of a broken heart. His father gave him the funds to go away to school, to get his mind off the daughter. But the father had no idea what his son was actually doing. As it turned out, the duke's son now had a type. Since you really had to get lucky and hope your dad's priest friend kidnapped a Jewish girl and mildly forced her to convert in order to meet a Jewish girl that would marry a Christian, he decided to go the other way. He went north to study the Torah and convert to Judaism. He kept a room near the college and had all of his mail collected. Every few weeks, he would travel back down and answer his father's letters. After months of study, the Duke's son finally converted, and he confessed to his rabbi that he really wanted to meet someone. The man smiled and knew just the family. They had relocated to Amsterdam a few months back, and they were looking for a good match for their daughter. The Duke's son, now going by the name Avraham Yeshurum, traveled to Amsterdam and met the winemaker's daughter for the second time. The parents were very suspicious by how well the couple hit it off. It was as if they already knew each other under dangerous and tragic circumstances. And so, the couple was happily married. No one knew of Thaddeus' crimes and his defeat except for the Maharel, and, of course, Thaddeus himself. As Passover approached in the year 1585, Thaddeus knew that the Maharel had been keeping a supernatural helper, and he knew neither of them should be underestimated. As Thaddeus watched the children of the servant who had betrayed him playing in his garden, he knew that if he finally wanted to get rid of the Maharel, he was going to have to do it himself. <laughs> Next week, we'll see just what Thaddeus has in store for the old rabbi. And we'll see how the golem finally dies. I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who voted for us for the Webbies. Because of you, we won the People's Voice Award for Best Podcast Writing. We can now call this the award-winning Myths and Legends Podcast. We're deeply honored, and we really appreciate it. So keep your eyes on this feed later on in the week for just a little something extra as a way for us to say thanks. The creature this week is the Flitterick, a fearsome critter from the US. As we've talked about, fearsome critters are critters that lumberjacks probably made up when they talked in their camps in the mid to late 1800s. So if you ever saw the killer rabbit from Monty Python and thought, hey, it would be really cool if that was real and everywhere, well, 
you're in luck, or the opposite of luck, because the flitterick is real and everywhere. It's not a rabbit, but a flying squirrel, and it moves too fast to see. You'll only know it's there by people mysteriously having their throats ripped out all around you. If you see a brown and white blur zipping from person to person, I would say run, but there's absolutely no chance of that working out for you. Just sit down and accept that that's how you'll go. By vicious, magical flying squirrel. Even when it's full, it's a danger too. Because while it has great speed, its flying precision leaves something to be desired. So when a family of flitterics zips by, even when they are not trying to eat you, it'll still be like a bunch of giant fuzzy bullets whipping through your camp. I don't know what incident led to this story the first time it happened, but apparently a lumberjack stood by an ox one day as a flying squirrel flew into its head and killed it instantly. The squirrel was somehow just dazed, brushed himself off, and climbed a nearby tree. So, of course, the legend of the flitterick, the murderous super-fast flying squirrel, was born. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.